I just want to quickly just do a, a little review. Um, we are going to be finishing up First John here. Um, but when we covered the first 15 verses of chapter 5 last week, uh, John told us that we've been provided with the evidence of our faith so that we may live confidently, honestly, obediently, and victoriously. We read how believers have been provided with this evidence to give us these assurances. Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God are born again. Those who believe in Jesus love other believers as an act of obedience to God. That our faith in Jesus has given us victory over the world. That our source of our relationship is with God, with God, is in Jesus alone. And that those who believe in God's Son possess assurance of eternal life. Now this week as we conclude this final chapter, we're going to see John mentioning a few more realities that believers can be certain about. I hope that by the time we finish this chapter of the f this first letter of John, his purpose for writing it will have been made clear. If you believe in the name of Jesus, you may know without a shadow of a doubt that in Christ you've been given more assurances than anything this world will ever offer you. You've been given unshakable assurances. So before we read, let's open up the word of prayer. Lord God, thank you again for bringing us all here this morning, Lord. All right, and, and so now we come and ask you, Lord, that you just speak to our hearts. Lord, we may just forget about the world around us, the issues, the problems, the stresses, the distractions. May we just forget about those things so that we can completely focus on what you want to tell us this morning, Lord. So we may hear from you from your word. Lord, show us things that we've never seen before. Minister to our hearts in ways that we need, Lord. May we just honor you now with this time. Pour your Holy Spirit in this room, Lord, and soften our minds and hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 5, verse 14. Now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears and if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sin, sin that doesn't bring death, there is sin that brings death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. 
and there is sin that does not bring death. As I briefly mentioned, John has been telling his readers about some of the certainties or some of the assurances believers have in Christ. Now prior to verse 14, the last one he mentioned was in verse 13 where he said, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In verse 14, he begins to tell us about another certainty. That's the certainty that God answers prayers. Those who believe in the Son of God can not only possess confidence in their relationship with God, but can also possess confidence in prayer. In one of our previous studies, I shared with you that a believer can confidently come before God because of what Christ accomplished for them. Because of the relationship that exists between the believer and God, he will hear the requests being made if it's in harmony with his will. If it's in harmony with his will. You can look at it this way. A believer's prayer is in harmony with the divine will when it's in harmony with Scripture or is prompted by the Spirit. Therefore, when believers ask God for anything, for anything according to His will, He gives heed to their requests and they receive what they ask of Him. This is the confidence in prayer we have as Christians. You see, when you and I come to God to tell Him our needs, we must do so knowing that whatever, that whether He grants it or not, His will, it's His will, and there's a purpose behind it. Now, if you're easily angered at God for not hearing or answering a particular prayer, then I suggest you, re- you reevaluate what you believe about who God is. Sadly, there are some who falsely believe that God's purpose and existence is to bend the knee to us and to obey our commands. Anyone who believes this about God is wrong and is guilty of idolatry because that's not who God is. That's a different God. You see, God isn't some genie in a bottle who grants wishes whenever someone summons him. He also isn't some benevolent divine force who will also answer your prayers if you have positive thoughts, give your money away, or or do a bunch of good works. The truth is, God created mankind to worship him, glorify him, and have a relationship with Him. You and I are here at this very moment because of His grace and because of His will. There's no other reason. He has us here because He wants to. He, he, there's a purpose behind it. If there was no purpose for us, that would be it. We would be gone. We'd be with Him in heaven as believers. But he has us here. He has us for a purpose. Nevertheless, he has a unique plan and purpose for each one of us. And it's his will that we discover it and live it out. Therefore, 
when we pray, we ought to pray not that our will be done, but that His will be done. Most of the time we can determine God's will by reading God's Word, listening to the Spirit, and discerning the circumstances around us. It's important that you believe by faith (coughs) that God will supply your needs. He knows exactly what you need. He's, He's our Father. And if you really believe in Him, if you really have that strong faith in Him, then you will know that He will take care of you if you're obeying His will and really need something. He will supply it in His way and in His timing time the most important thing about prayer is the will of God we must take time to ascertain what God's will is in a matter especially especially searching in the Bible for promises or principles that apply to our situation once we know the will of God we can pray with confidence and then wait for him to reveal the answer. Again, we can't force God's hands. We can't make him do something that if it's, that it's, that's not his will. What, if we do that, if we continually do that, it's just going to frustrate us, and it's going to make us angry, eventually make us angry towards God because he's not giving us what we want. We can't throw a tantrum. We have to come to him and just, Lord, if it's your will, let it be so. And if it is, he'll take care of it in his way, in his timing. Now in verses 16 and 17, John expresses into greater detail the theme of prayer by applying the previous two verses to a particular need of prayers for believers who fall into sin. In the first part of verse 16, the readers are told that when they see fellow believers committing sin, they ought to pray for them. In fact, John specifically states that seeing sin indicates that the sin is observable, not some internal attitude. Also notice he didn't say to immediately call them out on it. Let's say I was walking in in 7-Eleven or the store and I see a brother or sister in the Lord and, and they're purposely putting candies in their pockets or whatnot. That's an observable sin. I'm not to go up to that brother or sister and say, hey, man, you're a thief. You, you need to repent. and Not necessarily. Again, there's a time and place. What we're told is to pray, to pray for them. You don't always have to necessarily call a person out when you see them sin, when the sin is observable. So when you see a brother or sister sin, the first thing to do is pray. Now, in response to such prayer, John adds, God will give him life. Now, there's a couple things that this could mean. It can either mean that God, it's God who gives life to the repentant believer, or that the believer who prays for him will give life to him through his prayers. Now, either way, 
It's God who ultimately gives the life in answer to prayer. Now this promise of life is restricted to the case where a person involved is a believer who commits sin that doesn't bring death. Now, I've heard several Bible teachers and scholars and I've read several commentaries and books that have been divided as far as what this means. Some will say that John is speaking of physical death and some will say that he's speaking of spiritual death. However, if you look at the way this was originally written in the Greek, it appears that when, he's, that when speaking about the sin that leads to death, John doesn't have physical death in mind. Because the truth is, all sinners are susceptible to physical death because of sin. So what John is speaking here in this first, first part of verse 16 is the sin believers commit they can be forgiven and eternal death escaped. Now, while the first part of verse 16 tells us about prayer being answered for the person who commits sin, that doesn't bring death. The last part of this verse, John says, there is a sin that brings death. Once again, he, what he's referring to is spiritual death that results from a person's failure to experience eternal life that's only available to those who believe in the Son of God. They are the people who deny the human nature of Jesus Christ and deny the significance of His atoning death. As a result, they've placed themselves outside the sphere of forgiveness and their sins becomes then their sins become sins that bring eternal death now concerning this sin john writes i'm not saying that he should pray about that now it's important to keep in mind that he's not forbidding prayer for the unsaved or for those who have fallen away. We know, the Bible tells us, that we ought to pray for them, that we shouldn't stop praying for sinners to believe in Jesus and be born again. Thus, it cannot mean not to pray for our friends or loved ones who haven't yet come to Christ. The language of the phrase indicates simply that John cannot guarantee that prayer offered for those who completely deny or reject Jesus Christ will have the same effect of believing prayer promised in verses 15 and 16. Now, if this is the case, John does seem to parallel what Jesus said regarding the casting of pearls before swine in Matthew 7, 6. It appears John may be speaking of an ultimate rejection of Jesus after a person has come to know him and claimed him as Lord. These are the people who may have once claimed to be Christians and then later turned their backs on Jesus 
and totally denied their experience that they once had. Now this is one of those verses that can be difficult, that someone may find difficult to, or may be wrestling with. What do you do about that believer, that brother and sister, or brother or sister in Christ who has completely fallen away and now they reject Christ and they deny ever experiencing or ever asking him for salvation? How are you supposed to respond? How are you supposed to deal with that person? Well, I believe wisdom is needed when it comes to the ongoing attempt to minister to those who stubbornly refuse to listen to truth or heed correction. I think all of us can think of one or two people, or maybe even more, they may fall into this category. And to be honest with you, I may have been in this category myself at one time. You know, we love and care for them. And we have a deep concern for their salvation. But all they, want is, all they seem to want to do is to fight and argue with you. And a lot of times, they do it purposely just to get a negative reaction out of you. All they, all they want to do is just poke at you, poke at you, poke at you, just to see you react negatively. So they can say, ha ha, see, you're not perfect. I know what this is like because I've been on both sides of it. I've been on both sides of these arguments. Just ask my wife how many times I pushed her buttons when I, had, when I walked away from the Lord. A lot of times I just did it so she would leave me alone, and a lot of times it was just to get a reaction out of her so that I can have a reason or an excuse to accuse her. And I was completely wrong for doing that. But my experience has taught me that sometimes it may be necessary to move on and let that person go and, and just place that person in God's hands. Now, if you're married, this is going to be a lot harder to do because it's not like you can just walk away. It's not like you can just walk out the door and just divorce your spouse. It's more complicated than that. You have to ask for wisdom when it comes to that situation. You have to ask for help. In this situation, fellowship is important because their prayers will help and strengthen you. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ during these times because they, they're there, and especially the ones that know the situation. They will pray for you. They will give you advice or suggestions. But the last thing you want to do is isolate yourself. Seek them out. Seek that fellowship. Seek those that you know love and care for you. However, when it comes to extended family members and friends, when God tells you or God may tell you to let go 
and use that prayer time. Use that prayer time for someone else, for others. It's possible to do this while still holding on to the hope that God might still work in the heart, the, the heart of him or her to turn back to him. If you've been praying for a brother or sister who's turned their back on God and don't sense that you're asking in God's will as instructed in verses 14 and 15, you're not doing anything wrong. You're not sinning by not praying for them. And you see, there is precedence for this. Listen and consider what God told Jeremiah about his prayers towards a fallen nation of Judah. God told Jeremiah, as for you, do not pray for these people. Do not offer a cry or prayer on their behalf. And do not beg me, for I will not listen to you. Now as we move on in verse 17, John restates and reinforces the distinction between the sins that lead to death and those that do not. He seems to reassure his readers that though they may fall into sin from time to time, their sins do not lead to death. Continuing on, in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one we are in the true one that is in his son Jesus Christ he is in the true God he is the true God and eternal life little children guard yourselves from idols in these concluding remarks that I just read, John states the final two assurances believers have in Christ. In verses 18 and 19, he wants believers to be certain that as members of God in God's family, they've been delivered from the evil one. He, be, he begins to explain this assurance in verse 18 by reiterating something he had already earlier written about in chapter 3 verse 9 he writes we know that everyone who has been born who has been born of God does not sin now back in verse in chapter 3 verse 9 the basis for the readers not continuing to sin was that they were born of God and God's seed remained in them here in verse 18, the basis for them not to sin is put differently. It says, the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, the one John is referring to 
is none other than Jesus, the Son of God. And it's He who keeps followers from being led astray. And it's also He who protects them from the grip of the evil one, from the grip of the devil, whose main goal, all He wants to do is to injure a person's relationship with God. That's all he wants to do. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. And if he can cut that relationship between you and God, then he's one. He then supports the certainty that they've been delivered from the evil one by telling them, you or we are of God. In other words, they belong to God. They belong to Him. The fact that we belong to God is what distinguishes us from the rest of the world, who, he says, are under the sway of the evil one. You see, the reason believers aren't under the control of the evil one is because Jesus keeps them safe so the devil cannot harm them. First Peter 1.5 says, You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Whereas the rest of the world who don't know or have rejected Jesus lie under the influence and control over the evil one. The New Living Translation puts 2 Corinthians 4.4 like this. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded their minds of those who don't believe, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. As believers, as believers in Christ, the moment we surrendered our lives to Him, you and I, were delivered from the evil one. You see, a spiritual change of ownership took place that was signed and sealed by the blood of Jesus. And after he died on the cross, the evil one had no choice but to hand over the deed of, own, of ownership to Christ. Jesus gave himself as a ransom to set you free from the bondage of sin. And I'm sure you might have heard of that. He paid your ransom. He redeemed you with his blood so that you may become his. Therefore, you belong to Jesus Christ forever. Since you've been bought with a price, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians two things, two things you must do. 
He says in 1 Corinthians 6.20 that you ought to glorify God in your body. Meaning, as God's servant, you ought to represent Him so that others may see Him through you. Use your body. Use what He's given you. As an instrument. Glorify God in your body. That's why, as Christians, we promote abstinence before marriage. Even, you know, we promote just living a lifestyle that is biblical. We use our bodies to serve others, to love others, to love our spouses, to love our children. And in 1 Corinthians 7.23, he says, Do not become slaves of men. In other words, you've already, you've already been set free and belong to Jesus. Don't allow anyone, nobody, whether it's someone who claims to be holy or someone who claims to be a priest or, or someone of knowledge or a guru, whoever it may be, or even just a, a church. Don't let anyone take from you what, what Jesus already did for you on the cross. Don't let anyone take it away from you. You've been set free. And the last thing you want to be, what he doesn't want you to be, is just to be bonded or be in bondage to sin again. You've been forgiven. His blood has forgiven you. If Christ truly is the Lord of your life, the words Paul wrote in Romans 14.8 will be just as meaningful for you as they were for him. And there he writes, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Now in verse 20, John gives believers his final assurance. Our knowledge of God is true. John maintains in verse 20 that when the historical Jesus appeared, he gave understanding to people when they became believers. Jesus did this so that we may have, true knowledge, have a true knowledge of God, the Father, and have a relationship with him. Here, John is also reminding his readers that we are in the true one to reassure them of their position as born-again believers. What he's conveying is that those who hold to the message passed on by the ones who heard it directly from Christ himself are in God the Father. Now, during the time this was written, they were hearing it directly from the mouth of John and from the mouth of the other disciples that were there with Jesus. But now we have the Word of God. Now we have His letters. Now we have the writings that have been passed on to us. And now we're able to understand, have a better understanding of who God is. 
that we remain in him, so that we will be in him. So, since a believer is in God, they know him and have a relationship with him. Why? Because they're in his son, Jesus Christ. There are so many people out there. There's so many people, even in the Christian church, who will live their entire lives trying to figure out who God is and will go to endless pursuits to try to find Him. They will try to study philosophy. They will try to study all these religions. They will try to maybe find Him in politics, try to figure Him out there. I mean, I'm sure that there's people out there with multiple degrees that states how much they've learned about who God is and, and they become experts, so, so-called experts. But they don't know. They don't know him. They don't know who he is. They go out there and search and search for God. Yet, if they only took the time to honestly read the word of God with an open heart, they will see how he revealed himself by his son, Jesus Christ. If this has been you, everything you need to know about who God is, if you've been searching and trying to figure out who God is, all you have to do is look at the personality and character of Jesus. You can see God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 9, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. But it, it, it takes more than just seeing him. The person also has to believe in him. When you believe in Christ, you are in him and he is in you. You see, the point John is making, the point he's making here is there's no being in God without being in his son. Being in his son, Jesus Christ. He then ends verse 20 by saying, He is the true God and eternal life. Here he tells us who Jesus is. Now it's necessary to keep in mind that although Jesus was a man, he was also more than just a man. Jesus Christ was totally man and the true God and eternal life. Throughout this letter, John doesn't promote, I mean, in, throughout this letter, John doesn't promote the humanity of Jesus over his deity, or his deity over his humanity. And as Christians, we shouldn't either. The truth is, we must tell others that he's both fully God and fully man. 
John ends this first letter with an exhortation. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. It may seem strange that God ends this, or that John ends this letter in this way, but it fits with the theme of real living relationship with God. Back in verse 18, John had said that God protects believers, but here he now tells them that they too have a responsibility. That is to remain loyal. Remain loyal to the one by abstaining from anything that will take away their love, commitment, dependency, and worship of God. Now, if you, if you think that idolatry, that idol worship is just about worshiping and praying to some statue, or it's more than just that. Typically, idolatry comes in two forms. There's obvious idolatry, and then there's subtle idolatry. The obvious idolatry is what I just mentioned, is praying to, to a statue. The subtle idolatry is living for your career or for someone other than God. But I believe the, the subtle ones, the subtle, the subtle ones are the most dangerous and possibly what John is referring to here. This form of idolatry is the most dangerous because it leads to compromise. Just look at all the stories in the Bible. Look at all the stories in the Old Testament where people just at one time had great faith and were walking strongly with God. But they started to compromise and they fell away because of subtle idolatry. You may even know of people who are no longer in fellowship because they had their own idols they subtly worshipped. The fact is, either one of these, the subtle or the obvious ones, will always choke out a relationship with God and damage our relationships with other Christian, with other Christian brothers and sisters. If you don't believe me, think of that person that fell away and ask yourself, what was their idol? What was that thing that they were either obviously worshiping or, things, or that thing that they were subtly, inwardly worshiping? And how long did it take for them to compromise to a point where they just eventually fell away? Think of that person and think about yourself. Think about what your own idols are. Think about what you're secretly hiding in your heart that is making you compromise that is making you turn, your turn away your dependency from God. 
God deserves all your worship, all your praise, all your attention. You have to depend on Him. You must depend on Him because nothing else will save you. Nothing else will rescue you. You know what they are. God knows what they are. And even if you don't, maybe you're confused and you ask Him. Ask Him and He will show you. But it does. It takes strength. And once you remove it, and it's not going to be easy because these idols are important to you. They mean something to you. They've always meant something to you. And to get rid of that isn't going to be easy. But if you really love the Lord, you will make Him number one in your life. So John understood this. It may have been, and it may have been the reason he ended his letter in this way. So therefore, if you want to protect your relationship with God, keep away from anything that might take away God's place in your heart. As a believer, you can be certain that God will hear and answer your prayers. You can have assurance that you've been delivered from the evil one. And through God's spirit living in you, you can also be certain that your knowledge of God is true. However, the only way these certainties will be strengthened and confirmed is if you remain in Christ. Jesus said in John 8, verses 31 and 32, now listen carefully. He said, remain in, in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The re one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. The more you abide in him, the more he will make his will known and it will be acceptable to you. The more you abide in him, the more he will prevent the evil one from getting a grip on you. And the more he will reveal himself to you through the words, action, actions, and life of his son, Jesus Christ. These certainties aren't just for Christians. They're not just for Christians alone. Anyone who comes to him and opens the door to their heart to Jesus can obtain these certainties as well. But you must believe and trust him. In John 5.24, Jesus said, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. He wants to give you these certainties.
You can have these certainties. But you have to believe in Him. You have to trust in Him. And if you've never done that, we'll be closing here in just a minute with prayer. And for those listening or watching, give your life over to Jesus. You will have an opportunity to just surrender your life to Him. You must, he must be the Lord of your life. And you can have these certainties that I've been speaking about these past few weeks. You don't have to walk around, live life with a bunch of questions, doubting who God is and what He wants for your life. Trust in Him today before it's too late. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for being our Savior, for being the Lord of our lives. Lord, forgive us for any form of idolatry we may secretly harbor in our hearts. We just ask that you remove it, Lord. Because you deserve all our heart. Nothing else, Lord. Everything else is just junk, trash. Nothing else will save us. Nothing else will rescue us. Forgive us of our idolatry, Lord. Show us, reveal to us those things that we may just be blinded by, Lord. Open our eyes. And may we hand these idols over to you freely and willingly. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord. Thank you for listening to us. And again, Forgive us for those times that we've demanded things from you. Lord, help us to always understand that whatever we pray for, whatever we ask of you, has to be done according to your will. Because ultimately, your will is good. Your will is holy. And if you don't give it to us, if you don't answer us because it's not good for us, help us to see that. Help us to understand that, Lord. Help us to not trust in anything but you. Thank you for these assurances and for the other ones that we mentioned for the past couple weeks. It's only through you, only through your son, Jesus Christ, that we're able to have them. And so now I turn my prayer over to those who don't know Jesus, have never given their lives over to Jesus, have never accepted him as Lord in prayer. If that's you and you're ready to surrender your life to him, if you're ready just to make him the Lord of your life, 
and you really sincerely want him to fill you and to remove these idols from your life and you want him to be the Lord of your life just in the quietness of your heart wherever you're at just repeat this prayer Lord I'm a sinner and I ask you forgive me now Lord I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins I confess that he is God Lord I trust you I hand myself over completely to you Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Fill me with your love. Use me in any way that you desire, Lord. I bow down and worship you, Lord. Because I believe that you died for me. So now I accept this forgiveness. And may I just follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, thank you. I pray for them. Use, may they find good churches, good places to go worship, and, and, and they may find and they understand you more, Lord through the preaching of your word. Bless those who are here, Lord. Thank you for allowing them to be here and to hear this message, Lord. It is truly humbling and it's truly an honor. Lord, bless the rest of this time and use us, Lord, just to minister to one another. Bless this week. Bless our country, Lord in this difficult time of so much instability. Keep us safe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.